doing? Okay, awesome. I've had four shots of espresso, so I feel like I can speak really, really quickly. I love this house. I love what this house was built upon, and I love what this house has stood for, but I love the destiny on this house even more than I love its history. I believe the best days are before this house. So who receives that? Awesome, that is so great. Well, you can go ahead and sit down. Love Pastor Paul and Ashley, and I have my husband here in service. Can you stand up and wave, very cute husband? No, you used to make me do this. You know how the wives have to always do the homecoming queen wave? There we go, let John do it for a change. We, do, we did get to be here for the marriage conference and we loved it. We just felt like we got to see so many couples that were just so transparent and so ready to be transformed. And the great thing is we have resource out there because we know, that's my earring making noise. We know there's some of you, I'm gonna take it off. This is girl challenges here. Guys don't have to do this. Okay, we know that there's some people that did that weren't able to go to the marriage conference and so we have it on video and we have the book and the workbook out there so feel free to do that i think david is going to throw up a slide on that did you do that david or am i lying no the slide did not go up okay well if there's a there is a marriage resource out there and then we have a book out there by my husband called good or god and honey can you explain this book can you explain it do you want me to try to explain it Okay, here, I feel like he can do it. Come on, you can stand right here, baby. Come on, come on, tell Good them evening, about this Victory. book. How are you? There you go. You're looking really cute tonight, Mrs. Bevere. Thank but you anyway, so much. Anyway, the book is- Don't throw me off. It's probably, I believe, one of the most important books God has given me to write to date. And there is a way, Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way, there's a method, there's wisdom that seems right, seems beneficial, seems profitable, it seems acceptable, it seems good to a man but its end is where you don't wanna find yourself, the way of death. And so this book exposes how the greatest, sometimes the greatest enemy against your life is what's good because it robs you from God's best in your life. And so it's out there, I'll be preaching on it tomorrow morning at the chapel and then again at the 11.30, is that right? Pastor Paul, 11 o'clock service. Okay. So there you go, Mrs. Okay, Bevere, awesome. you're beautiful. Awesome. Thank you very much. And you know, I wanna say something, our culture right now is really good at being loving, but if you have loving without truth, you end up in deception. You have to have both love and truth, most mercy and truth, if we are going to end up in a place of strength, if we're going to end up in a place of light and hope and what is holy and what is God. We also have two other books out there. We have Lioness Arising, Wake Up and Change Your World. This is for the women. I believe that God is waking up his women in the church. And then we have Girls with Swords out there, How to Carry Your Cross Like a Hero. We wanna see the women armed. We're not gonna fight the men. We're gonna begin to fight alongside of the men. So I'm not preaching on either of those tonight. I'm super excited, about six weeks ago, I brought a message at Hillsong Church on a Sunday morning, and I really felt like the Holy Spirit said, I want you to bring that exact same message here in Tulsa. And so I am excited to bring that message. Are you guys with me on this? Yeah. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you facet this message 
for these people in this moment in history. And God, I thank you that you give me the word so they don't just experience information, but they experience transformation. And everybody agrees, say amen. amen. Okay, if you wanna put a title to this, you can put the title, How Gritty Are You? And I can just kind of feel like Okies and Oklahoma people, they're kind of gritty. I mean, since I was a little girl, I was loving the musical Oklahoma. So I'm kind of thinking you guys have a little bit of grit to you. But they've done these extensive studies and they found that grit or the grit factor, as they call it, is the number one determination of whether somebody or something will succeed. I'm gonna define it for you. It says grit factor is the passion for a long-term goal coupled with powerful motivation to achieve objectives. It is the perseverance that overcomes obstacles or challenges that lie on or within an individual's path and serves as a driving force to achieve. Grit has actually been acknowledged as a virtue since the time of Aristotle. It is a winning blend of tenacity, focus, diligence, consistency, hard work, and the ability to stay on task, self-control, and perseverance. You can actually go home tonight and you can find out just how gritty you are because they have online tests that measure your grit factor. Now you have to be honest, it's gonna measure you on a scale from one to five. The first time I took it, I took it in the presence of my husband and my sons, and I'm just gonna tell you, I falsified some of my information. And I came in at a 4.6, I didn't wanna look wimpy, but when I took it alone and in private, and I answered the questions honestly, I came in at a 3.9. Why? Because I excel in procrastination. I can't even tell you how creative I am in the means of procrastination. I can procrastinate faster and with more efficiency than anybody else on the face of the earth. Second thing, I don't get anything done if I do not have a deadline. If I hadn't had a deadline on my first book, I would never have written a book. I would still be pondering the ideas. If my children didn't have to be at school at a certain time, I would have said, everybody, let's just sleep in today. I need out points. I need starting points. And I need finish points in my life. So I'm kind of low on the grit scale. But grit is actually something that all of us need to up a little bit because grit is more important than talent. It is more important than your ethnicity. It is more important than flash. It is more, more important than cash. It is more important than your connections. And one of my most favorite historic heroes who was gritty is Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill said, if you are going through hell, and that's not a cuss word, that's a destination. If you are going through hell, you just keep going. Gritty people cannot imagine if they are in the middle of a mess that that is the end of the story. They're gonna continue to go until they find out where they think that they should arrive. And you can say whatever you want about these elections. I actually think we should call them off for a lack of candidate. But you can say whatever you want about these elections. But both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are gritty. 
They are focused, they are ambitious, they are tenacious, they have a goal in mind, and they have no idea of how to quit. They are going to go ahead and they are going to press through it. What we need in the church is to mix godly and gritty. And the thing that closes the gap is the worship and the word. And as an Italian, I think it's only fitting that I unpack the book of Romans for you to up your grit factor. Okay, so Romans chapter 1 verse 19 opens up with, but the basic, basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes, and there it is. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes as such can't see, his eternal power. For instance, and the mystery of his divine being so that nobody has a good excuse how many of you have had those airplane conversations? You're sitting down next to somebody. They find out you're a Christian. They're like, what about people on deserted island? How are they supposed to know about God? Well, my Bible has an answer for that. It says that if people will just take a long and thoughtful look at what is created, if we will pause and we will ponder the stars, if we will sit on a beach, if we will look at the mountain, creation itself declares the existence of God. And when we look around at the creation and we say there has to be something more than what I see by the way it is God's eternal power, I can't make this, God must exist. It says that God will reveal himself so that nobody has a good excuse. But our culture doesn't pause and ponder. Our culture is flipping through information as fast as it can come to it. You might even now be scrolling through Instagrams and your thumb are beginning to hurt because you gotta like all your friends. You may not even read what they've posted, but you're gonna hit like, 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 like. You're not pausing. You're not pondering. You're not taking anything in. You are constantly being distracted by information. And we are constantly distracted by information that we actually never take the time to stop and create sacred space in our life and allow what we see and what we hear to actually have a capacity to grow in our life. Then we do not experience transformation. But when I pause and I step away from all of the distractions of everything we are seeing nowadays, when I turn off my TV and I turn off the Facebook and I turn off the Instagram and I turn off the Twitter and I look around, I look around at my world and I will say I've had the benefit of looking at America from the outside, sitting on foreign soil and looking at our nation. Do you understand that right now our nation looks like a reality television show? Do you understand that we used to be statesmen? Do you understand that we used to be known for what is good about America, and now we are known for the most ridiculous nonsense 
Not because there aren't amazing people, but because our media has put that out there constantly until we are so confused about who we are as a nation. And can I also say the tragic thing, we are also confused about who we are as a church. I look around and I think, what the heck is going on? Anybody else feel that way? When I look around at where we are right now and the things I am seeing and the things that are called normal and the things that are called acceptable, and I compare it to just five years ago, oh my God, I, I have no idea what is going on. And God's like, I'm so glad, Lisa, that you've paused and you've pondered long enough to say what is going on because I have an answer for you. And it is found in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. It says, what happened was this. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it all, but were illiterate regarding life. You know what? We have a nation that acknowledges God, but acknowledging is not worship. We have a nation that admires God, but admiring is not worship. Worship means you bow your knee. Can I just tell you something? I have a lot of personal opinions, but my personal opinions are disqualified when I worship because it doesn't matter about my opinions. It matters about his opinion. And the truth is that his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And no matter how literate I think I am, how many of you know that the word of God says the wisdom of man is foolishness, yes, foolishness to God. We have a generation right now that has so much information and yet a glaring lack of transformation. They are the wisest, most highly educated group of fools. And you say, how, how, how can you be so mean? Because the Bible says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And what we have done is we've educated ourselves to such a level that we're like, God, thank you so much. We used to need you, but now we're too smart. Sometimes I begin to wonder if we have wandered so far off the pathways of life that we are just now too smart to find our way back home. I watched an interview earlier this year, and they were talking to a 52-year-old man who was the father of seven. And they were interviewing him because he had decided to self-identify as a six-year-old girl. And he began to say, okay, so now that I am living as a six-year-old girl, I drive my tractor like a six-year-old girl. I drive my car like a six-year-old girl. I'm filling up that six-year-old girl love tank that never got filled up. Well, possibly because you were a man. But anyway, and, and he was like talking and they're interviewing him and nodding. And I'm thinking, okay, let's take this to the logical progression. If he's a six-year-old girl, 
He needs to have his driver's license pulled. If he's a six-year-old girl, he cannot be employed anymore. He needs to be back into the first grade if he is a six-year-old girl. And he was sitting there in a dress with a headband on saying he was a six-year-old girl. Now, this was so bizarre and alarming to me. But what was even more upsetting to me was that other people's reaction to this interview. When they said, what do you think about this? Do you know that not one person said, this is nonsense? Do you know that every single person was afraid to say the truth? Every single person said, I don't want to judge. I didn't know that you could self-identify age, but maybe now that's something you can do. No, you actually can't. If you have been alive for 52 years, you are not six. I'm just saying that as a 55-year-old woman, if I get up here and I tell you that you're, I am six, somebody needs to pick me up and walk me off the stage because that means I'm having a breakdown. Okay, so. Oh, yeah. Everybody's afraid of being labeled as judging. But speaking the truth in the face of nonsense is not judging. Speaking the truth sets people free. Speaking the truth creates some sanity in the middle of ridiculousness. Goes on to say, they traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands. For cheap figurines you can buy at any roadside stand. So God said, in effect, if that's what you want, that's what you get. And it wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen smeared with filth, filthy inside and out. And all this because they traded the true God for a fake God. And worshiped the God they made instead of the God who made them. The God we bless. The God who blesses us. Oh, yes. We have a choice to worship the God who made us or worship the God we make. See, the God I make serves me. But the God who made me made me to serve him. And so we have to get this back right in our lives or we are going to be illiterate and foolish and ridiculous. Goes on in verse 26 to say, worse followed refusing to know God. They soon didn't know how to be human either. Women didn't know how to be women and men didn't know how to be men. Okay. There is a trend right now that is encouraging all of us to self-identify. We are doing some kind of sociological experiment on children and preteens and junior high people and saying, if you don't feel comfortable as a woman, then maybe you're a man. If you don't feel comfortable as a girl, then maybe you're a boy. I just need to ask, was anybody comfortable at 13? because I certainly was not comfortable at 13. If somebody had asked me to self-identify at 13, I might have said, I'm a unicorn. I don't have any idea what I am. I feel so disconnected from everything. My reality at 13 was so awkward. 
You know, I was a girl, but you know what? My body was refusing to grow breasts. If somebody had said, are you sure you're a girl? I would say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Self-identification. Self-identification. You don't ask people who are in transition to self-identify. When we are going from girl to woman or boy to man, you do not put pressure on people at their most vulnerable time and make them self-identify. We have wise people around them that say, I know this is an awful time period. I lived through this awful time period. But this awful time period is not your identification. This awful time period is your time of growth. Why are we doing this? Why? Women not knowing how to be women. Men not knowing how to be men. Hey, our culture is constantly fighting this. It is trying to get to be the men to be more feminine and the women to be more masculine, hoping that some kind of androgynous blend would bring healing to both the genders, but androgyny will not bring healing. The healing comes when women are women and men are men, and both women and men get their identity from God and not from their sexual function. I, I just wonder why we would think self-identification would work. See, the very first incident that we find of self-identification is not Adam and Eve, it's Lucifer. Lucifer, perfect in wisdom, perfect in beauty, encrusted with jewels, walked among the holy stones and fire of God, sat and looked upon the Creator. But somehow his worship downgraded to admiration because he no longer said, I'm going to bow and honor God. He said, I will make myself like the Most High. And his attempt to make himself, or can I say, remake himself, was his unmaking. Then we see Adam and Eve who said, we're going to self-identify. We're going to be like God apart from God. Again, it was not their remaking. It was their unmaking because they had already been made in the image of God. And when they decide to remake themselves in their own image, they unmade themselves. So he's not going to try any new thing when he already knows what works. Self-identification is not what we need to be doing. The truth is, the more I pursue God, the more he reveals me. The more I pursue God, the more fully human I become. The more I pursue God, the more of a woman I become. The more my husband pursues God, the more of a man he becomes. Why? Because God created a vacuum in each of us and a vulnerability in all of us. Gender makes us vulnerable, but it also makes us dependent on God. And so when we press into God with all of the complexities and all of the challenges of our individual genders, 
He makes up the gap for that. And so we need to be a people who speak truth. Because you can change everything and be empty when you were created for filling your void with God. Goes on in the next verse, it says, sexually confused, they abused and defiled one another, women with women and men with men. All lust and no love. And then they paid for it. Oh, how they paid for it. Emptied of God and love. Godless and loveless wretches. I'm gonna be really clear here. It's not God. It's not God who's making them pay for it. When you spend everything you have and you build your entire life with untempered mortar, because nobody has told you the truth. It is costly. I am so thankful that at 21 years of age, when I got saved, somebody sat down and said to me, baby girl, you have built your entire life with untempered mortar. You thought promiscuity was going to bring you freedom, and it did not bring you freedom. It will cost you everything. You have forfeited your virginity, but you can recover your virtue. I didn't think that person was judging me. I knew that person was intercepting my life before it was completely bankrupt. Yeah. 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 Romans 1.28 goes on to say, since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. And then the chapter closes out with verse 32. And it is not as if they don't know better. They know perfectly well they're spitting in God's face. And they don't care. Worse, they hand out prizes to those who do the worst things best. That is our nation right now. You're handing out prizes to people who do the worst things best. That is our nation. I can't do anything about our nation, but I can talk about what God wants the response of the church to be in the midst of this. This is the pulse of our culture, but here is the perspective for God's people. Romans 2 verse one says, these people are on a dark spiral downward, but if you think that leaves you on high ground where you can point your finger at others, think again. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors. But God isn't so easily diverted. He sees right through all such smoke screens and holds you to what you've done. You didn't think, did you, that just by pointing your fingers at others, you would distract God from seeing all your misdoings and from coming down on you hard? Or did you think that because he is such a nice God, he'd let you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but he is not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into a radical life change. All this nonsense is going out in the world. 
But sometimes when I look at the church, I don't see people who God has taken firmly by the hand and led them into a radical life change. I don't know what your past looked like, but when I got saved, I did not need a 10 degree course correction. I needed a 180 degree course correction. And God took me firmly by the hand and said, baby girl, you have been going in a death and destruction way and I'm going to take you and I'm gonna lead you across the street firmly by the hand and you need to go in this direction. I remember that John preached the gospel to me on our very first date and I spent all that night looking for the book of Paul because John had said Paul said this and Paul said that and I knew there had to be a book of Paul and I had grabbed my little way Bible that was in my dorm room and I was like, please open to the book of Paul. But before I even went in there looking for the book of Paul, I had said, Jesus, don't come in my dorm room yet. I need you to stay in the halls. I didn't understand it was the Holy Spirit, but what I did was I said, you just need to stay out here because I got some nonsense in my room that I need to get out of my room. I went into my room and I grabbed out all the pornography. I grabbed out all of the alcohol. Why, did somebody tell me to do that? No, nobody told me to do that. But when you are born again out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, all of a sudden now you want sacred space in your life. All of a sudden I knew that he was holy even if I didn't know how to define the word holy. I was like, you need to stay here. I'm sorry, I'm a mess. But now my life is different. All of a sudden everything began to shift in my life. I think I was only saved, what, a week and a half, two weeks before I went back to my sorority house at the University of Arizona where I had been chosen as the marshal. I don't know if you are in a sorority or fraternity and I'm not gonna make a call on that. Please don't tell me you need to deliver me from that. I've already renounced everything. But here's the thing. The marshal was the person in charge of initiation rituals. Why had I been picked as that? because I was the meanest pe person in the sorority. So they had picked me as the marshal. And so when I show up with a light on my face, same clothes, same double pierced ears, looking the same, but not looking the same, everybody said to me, what happened to you? Did you lose weight? I said, no, I got born again. They were all like, crap. We don't want you born again. We like you mean. We like you. Wait, we've elected you to be the marshal. I'm like, I will not be hazing the freshmen this year. And if you guys don't like it, you can just make me a chaplain. <laughs> you think I'm joking? I seriously lobbied for that. John also explained to me, thank God, that I was going to have to read the word of God out loud. And so you try that in your sorority house when you've got 83 girls all living under the same roof. It was like demons come out when they would hear you reading the scripture out loud. People would come running like, shut up, shut up, I'm trying to study. And I'm like, oh, you've got a demon. But I wouldn't say that. So what did I do? Did I say, well, I can't read? Did I say that? No, you know what I did? I climbed up onto the roof of my sorority house. I went up the fire escape and I sat on the roof of my sorority and I read the scriptures out loud. I read them out loud to myself. I read them out loud to the sorority. I read it out loud to the campus. I looked into the distance of the mountains and I 
somehow, and that moment began to glimpse my legacy and my future. Praying in tongues was also a little bit of a problem in a sorority house. So what did I do? I reserved my praying in tongues for when I was in the shower. I would be in the shower and I would pray in tongues. And then at night, I would walk down the hallways with my hands on either side of the hall, praying over my sorority sisters as I pass every single dorm room. I would pray led by the Spirit. I would call my sorority sisters out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. Late at night, there'd be knocks on my door. Young girls would say, we heard you used to be the wildest girl in the sorority. We heard you used to be a hoe, and now you are the on-fire Christian. What happened to you? And I would say, I need you to sit down and close your eyes. Why? because I didn't know how to get them born again, but I had a campus crusade track, and so I'd make them sit down Indian style, and then I would sit down Indian style, and I'd put the campus crusade track under my leg, and I would pray the entire track with them. Don't open your eyes, I'd make them pray the entire track. But when that kind of radical life transformation happens, Oh, I'm going to tell you who you get persecuted from. The Christians that don't have the radical life transformation. The Christians that did the 10% course correction. The people that were born Christians. They also knock on your door. And they say things like, you need to tone it down. I'm like, what? They're like, you need to tone this Christian thing down. I'd be like, wait. They're like, we're Christians. You don't hear us going around getting people saved, talking to people about healing. You need to stop telling people you got healed. And I'd be like, you're a Christian? Which was not the reaction they wanted from me. I'd be like, you, were, you would come into my room on Saturday mornings and on Sunday after you went to church. And while I was hung over, you had me unpack the escapades of the night before. You never told me about Jesus. You never spoke to the pain and the void and the wounding in my life. You were living vicariously through my sin. Oh, but is it any different when we watch reality television? Is it any different when we look at the gossip things? Come on, people. They are watching and they are waiting for us to have radical life transformation. But you know, they didn't, they didn't hear me praying in tongues. Maybe some did in the shower. They didn't hear me reading my Bible and they didn't see me walk in the halls at night. Do you know when they knew I was a Christian? One morning, we had all pulled a bunch of all-nighters for midterms, and I don't know uh, what you studied, but I chose a really hard major, which I'm not even using now. I wish I would have picked something easy, but I was in international economics, and so I, would have, I remember I had three finals in one day, things like stats and tax accounting and then something else, and we'd pull all these overnighters, and we were in a study group in the sorority, and 
I'm not trying to be mean, one of the elementary ed majors who had gone to bed early the night before showed up in the breakfast area and she looked at our table and she was like, wow, you all look like you've been run over by a car. And we're like, thank you, thank you. We're reviewing right now for the tax codes. And so then we went back and she was like, no, really, you guys all look awful. And the fallen part of me, the Sicilian part of me, the justice part of me that was not really appropriate yet, just said out loud, Kelly, why are you such a beep in the morning? And the whole room froze. And she stood up and she said, I knew you weren't a Christian. I knew you weren't a Christian. And everybody now at the breakfast room, like about 60 people, they're all watching and waiting for my reaction as Kelly goes storming out of the cafeteria area. One of my sorority sisters reaches over and touched my arm and she said, I was just about ready to say the exact same thing. And I said, but no, I had to jump the gun and say it before you. <laughs> had a chance in that moment to preach my first sermon. Stood up, apologized to every single one of my sorority sisters. And I said, I was completely out of line. I owe her an apology. And I left my breakfast and my books behind and I went and apologized to her. She refused to receive it, but here's the thing. My sorority sister said to me, that was the day that I knew you were a Christian. Not because I did everything perfect, but for the first time, I admitted when I was wrong. The world is not watching and waiting for us to be perfect, but they do want us to be humble. And being humble means that we own our mistakes. And when we do or we say something out of line, we bow our knee because we worship a God. And when we misrepresent him, we apologize. We apologize. We apologize. Radical life change. He goes on to say, you're not getting by with anything. Every refusal and avoidance of God adds fuel to the fire. The day is coming when it is going to blaze hot and high. God's fiery and righteous judgment. Make no mistake, in the end, you get what's coming to you. Real life for those who work on God's side, but to those who insist on getting their own way and take the path of least resistance. Fire. You guys, I'm not making this up. This is scripture. And if you look at our day and the time, I am very concerned. Because when we have crossover, with compromise, we breed confusion. See, you and I are not called to the path of least resistance. We're actually called to the path 
of great resistance. And my Bible says that friendship with the world is enemy with God. It says if you desire to make yourself a friend to the world, you will set yourself at enmity with God. What does that actually mean to be a friend to the world? We live in a day and a time that is very big on social justice. Well, let me be very clear. There is a big difference between being a friend to the world and friendship with the world. Friendship with the world means I am part of its system. Being a friend to the world means I am compassionate, but I am not a sympathizer. See, the truth is, any system I am under, I cannot have authority over. We are called to clothe the naked in the world, not get naked with the world. We are called to be bedside to the world, not be in bed with the world. We are called to feed the hungry in the world, not be hungry for what the world hungers for. We are called to quench the thirst of those in the world, not thirst for what they find to try to satisfy their needs. And when we act like they have something that we want, we break their hearts because the truth is they are hoping that what we have is real. Because once they have gotten to that level of celebrity status, they know how empty it is. They know how lonely it is. They don't have any friends that don't want something from them. And when you come, not into their world, but you come representing the kingdom of heaven, walking the face of this earth, and you're not too interested in just Snapchatting with them, but you actually take them in private and say, your life is about ready to implode. Let me tell you about real life. Let me tell you about true riches. Friendship with the world is marked by three things. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Lust of the eye, wanting everything you see. Every single season. We need new clothes. We need what? No, no, we actually don't. We actually don't. Everything you see, wanting it. Why do we want it? Because we don't understand that we have been clothed in righteousness. We don't understand that we are royally robed. And so we keep covering ourselves with what the world acknowledges. And we forget what we have. Now, I like clothes, but I'm not going to be driven by it. I'm not going to be driven by it. Second thing is wanting your own way. Wanting your own way. The lust of the flesh. Wanting our own way. Willfulness. Willfulness. Pride of life. Wanting to appear important in the eyes of other people. Everything in this culture says, post on Facebook and look important. Post on Instagram and look important. Right? Things that make people say, you're important. You have something to say. You know what? I'm an ambassador for another kingdom. It doesn't matter what I do. It matters what he has done. And we need to be talking more about what God has done than what any of us do. Now, I became a Christian in the 80s, and the 80s were an awkward time. You know, I'm not going to deny that. 
And then the 90s, I don't even know what to say about that. You know, I was a young mother and I missed a lot of it, but I do remember there was, you know, forced laughing, forced falling, uh, people, you know, like having little lay down cloths and stuff. But here's the, here's the thing, here's the thing. We would all tolerate maybe three and a half hours or four hours of nonsense for five minutes in the presence of God. And when you felt the presence of God, you didn't just experience it at church, you actually realized that something was happening. Something was happening. And we would take that presence of God home with us. And we would come into our household and we would say, God, we want you to be honored in our home. And what we listen to and how we conduct ourselves and what we watch on TV and you can come to a service like this and it can be a coal in your heart. It can ignite a little bit of a fire. You can go home. You can feel warm from worship or warm from somebody praying over you afterwards or warm from a message. But tomorrow morning, it'll just be ashes if you're not fanning that into a flame. We need to be a people who take what is deposited in the services, what is deposited in the worship, and we take that fire home, that spark, and we fan it into a flame. And one of the ways we fan it into a flame is we go home and we figure out what is chaff. What is nonsense? What is garbage? And we dump that stuff on the bonfire of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we create sacred space once again. Because we're going to need the fire of God and we are going to need the presence of God if we are going to stand in these last days. And I am gritty enough to know that this is not the end of our stories because the end of the story, the way I read it, is signs and wonders and miracles. The end of the story, the way I read it, is a generation, young and old, who begin to prophesy. The way I read it, there's going to be prophetic people who stand on earth and speak the word of God and it is like fire consuming the chaff in this world. The way I read it, there is going to be a life and a death conflict and you and I created to be gritty and to be able to stand. It goes on in Romans 2.9 to say, if you go against the grain, you get splinters. Regardless of which neighborhood you're from, what your parents taught you, what schools you attended, I'm just gonna say that I don't know where you are from, but you are no longer from heaven. You are for the kingdom of God. You are not from this earthly place. You are set apart for heavenly places. And you do not live under the rule of this world. You live under the rule of heaven. You live under the rule of the Lord God Most High. It says, but if you embrace the way God does things, there are wonderful payoffs without regard to where you are from or where you were brought up. When I read this, 
I laid hold of this with both hands. I had no spiritual inheritance, but I was determined I would have a spiritual legacy. Closing with these verses, being a Jew won't give you an automatic stamp of approval. God pays no attention to what others say or what you think about you. He makes up his own mind. If you sin without knowing what you're doing, God takes that into account. But if you sin knowing full well what you are doing, that's a different story entirely. Merely hearing God's law is a waste of your time if you don't do what it commands. Doing, not hearing, is what makes the difference with God. James says it this way, be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. Because when we are hearers only, it says we deceive ourselves. So I want to close the gap in your life. I want to up the grit factor. I believe that you are here on a Saturday night because you understand that you are not made for death and destruction. You are made for signs and wonders and miracles. That you know there is something more woven inside of you than anything you have seen outside of you up until this point. So can we all stand to our feet right now and let's just press in. I'm not going to make it complicated because it doesn't need to be complicated. And this isn't a salvation issue because this is not a salvation issue. This is a sanctification issue. We need to be people that are holy unto our God. That means we are set apart. That means we are all in. That means we are His. So lift up your hands and say, Heavenly Father, I'm ready to close the gap in my life. I am laying hold of friendship with God and I'm letting go of a friendship with the world. Father, I wanna be gritty. I wanna be focused. I wanna do all to stand and then stand therefore. God, I am not content with living a course corrected life. I am for signs and wonders and miracles. I am a holy generation. I am a set apart priesthood. I am your son. I am your daughter. You can count on me in Jesus' name. I believe your best days are before you. I believe as you worship God, worship God, not just acknowledge Him, but bow your knee and worship Him in your private life, that He's going to reveal space in your life that needs to be sanctified. And then I believe that God's Spirit is gonna come into those spaces and He is going to inhabit it with His fire. And what has just been coal and ash in your life is going to be a flame that is gonna spread out of your life and it is going to touch not only this nation, but the nations of the earth. I believe that God is going to put His signet on you. The people are going to say there is something different about you. And maybe if you've lived it mildly maybe if you've lived it with an area of compromise 
that you can make a shift and you begin to apologize that you would no longer be worldly, but you would be otherworldly in Jesus' name. And everybody agrees, say, amen, amen. God bless you.